you would please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 1 Kings chapter 20. 1 Kings chapter 20. We're going to meet some people we've already seen before. And we're going to get to know them better. And we're going to meet some new people today. And as I prayed that God would teach us, we're going to learn of some of the importance of obeying God. And sometimes when it doesn't make any sense. You'll see what I mean as we follow along. Chapter 20 of 1 Kings, verse 1. It says, And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. You all remember him, right? How many of you remember Ben-Hadad, king of Syria? All right, good. Well, I got a little bit of news for you. You've heard about Ben-Hadad, but it's very likely that there's lots of guys who have the name Ben-Hadad. And we're not exactly sure that the guy we're going to meet today, who's named Ben-Hadad, is the same Ben-Hadad we learned about a little while back. And the reason we know that is because we've had Ben-Hadads in several generations. And we're not quite sure if this is an old Ben-Hadad or a young Ben-Hadad. But you might remember a few things about him. You remember that um, during another king's reign, he caused some trouble. Do you remember that? Well, let's look at our timeline, and maybe our timeline can help you remember. It helps me remember. The timeline is a great tool to help us remember who these people are and how they're related to each other and what's going on in history. So we see this part. Now, we know these last three kings, or these first three kings, right? We know them real good, right? Saul, David, Solomon. You might look at it and go, why do you keep putting that up there? Because I sure hope you don't forget it, because it's an important piece of it. But let's go on to the divided kingdom. Now, do you see Ben-Hadad up there on the chart? Any of you see Ben-Hadad? If you see Ben-Hadad up on the chart, raise your hand. He's not up there. Why isn't Ben-Hadad up on the chart? Elijah, do you know why? Why isn't Ben-Hadad up on the chart? That's right. He said, because he's Syrian. And we don't have any Syrian kings on this chart. We just have the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah and some of the prophets. We don't have any of the Syrian kings. But we've had Ben-Hadads here in several occasions. We've, we've seen Ben-Hadad um, in the reign of Solomon. There was a guy named Ben-Hadad. And then Rehoboam had a Ben-Hadad. And Asa had a Ben-Hadad. And, and now we're, we're over in this area, somewhere in this area. And we've got a Ben-Hadad. They're all king of Syria. Now, are they the same guy? I don't know. I don't think they are. But... I don't know how many there are. I don't know if there's two or three or how many. But there's, there's a Ben-Hadad right here. Now, the last time we ran into a Ben-Hadad, a king of Syria, is when a king of Judah hired him. Does anybody remember what the king of Judah hired him to do? Does anybody remember? Elijah? That's right. Attack Baasha. Asa, king of Judah, hired Ben-Hadad to attack Baasha. And God rebuked Asa for that, didn't he? 
he reminded Asa of how he had given him victory over the Edomites, and he told him, and this is very important, if you had trusted in me, I would have delivered Baasha and Ben-Hadad into your hands. To put it bluntly, God has been wanting to judge the nation of Syria for a long time. But part of the reason he's not been able to judge them through his own theocratic kingdom is because the king who is the mediatorial king, the king of Judah, wasn't obeying. And, and, and Asa instead forms a league with him, makes a covenant with him. When God wanted to use Asa to judge Ben-Hadad, to destroy Syria, he wanted to judge them. But he couldn't because Asa, instead of seeking God and trusting God, instead he made a covenant with them. Well, now today, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, he gathers together all his host. Now, I'm going to just give you a heads up. If you compare all the details in this account, you've got to compare a few different details to come up with the numbers. But you can come up with the numbers, and you will find out that when Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, assembles his army together, it is 127,000. That's a lot of people. 127,000 people. So Ben-Hadad, come on down here, Ben-Hadad. You have gathered together your host, 127,000. It tells us that among these, there were 30 and two kings. 30 and two kings. That's a lot of kings. Now, when we think of kings, we typically think more of emperors than kings. Um, in this time, a king was oftentimes a king over a very limited region. Even Ben-Hadad was a king over a limited region. But he has recruited 32 kings along with the, the 127,000 to come with horses and chariots and to come and besiege Samaria. Now, how many of you know anything about Samaria? Is Samaria the capital of Israel or Judah? Israel. That's right. Who built Samaria? Anybody know? Hey, Ahab, do you know who built Samaria? Your dad. Omri did. Omri built Samaria. And Samaria sits on the top of a mountain. Let's look at our map. Here we can see the nation of Israel. We see the Mediterranean Sea. We see the Salt Sea, just the tip of it, down here at the bottom, the Dead Sea, the Sea of Galilee. And up here is Syria. And we see Damascus there. That's your hometown. That's your capital city. Meanwhile, he's come down here to Samaria. Ahab, you want to come on down and take a seat in your throne? He's in Samaria. Now, Samaria is built on a, on a hilltop. It's built up on a mountain. 
It's a fortress. It is a mighty city that Ahab's father has built. And, and, and this is one little detail, but I mean, Omri is famous for over a hundred years as this land is called not Israel, but the land of Omri. And one of the reasons is because of the magnificent city and stronghold that Samaria was. So here, King Ahab, his majesty, is in his capital city, a fortress. Nobody's going to get through there. But what do you think about 127,000? That's a lot of people. You think 127,000 can get into Samaria? Well, let's keep reading here. For it tells us that they besieged Samaria. Charlie, do you know what it means to besiege a city? Yeah, it means nobody gets in and nobody gets out. That also means that no food gets in. So they eventually are going to starve the city. They've besieged it. Nobody gets in the city. Nobody gets out of the city. And on top of that, they're warring against it. They're fighting against it. They're attacking it. Well, as they've been attacking and time is going by, Ben-Hadad comes up with a brilliant idea. He's been practicing warfare, but he's going to change his strategy. He, he is going to, instead of attacking the city with his chariots, which what good do chariots do against stone walls? With his horses, and what good do horses do against stone walls? Now, yes, they did have war machines, and they were, I'm sure, building these magnificent things to tear down that city if they could. But if you read between the lines here and the details that come, they weren't finding any success. They weren't making any progress. They weren't getting into the city. And so he comes up with another strategy. He's going to intimidate him. He's going to threaten him. He's going to bribe him. So he calls a messenger. He has a messenger, and he has this messenger, and he gives him a special message for Ahab. So this messenger goes to Ahab, and he says to him, Thus saith Ben-Hadad, thy silver and thy gold is mine, thy wives also and thy children, even the goodliest are mine. So the king hears this, and listen to what he says. Whoa! Well, you bring this message back to Ben Hadad. Did you hear? Did you hear what he demanded and what Ahab just agreed to? He demanded all the silver, all the gold, and his wives. Now, you may not understand that, but that's a big deal. That's a huge deal. To take a king's wife is to totally remove him from any position of power. And his children. Even the goodliest. The crowned princes. They're all mine, he says. Everything you have is mine. And Ahab answers and says, 
My Lord, O king, according to thy saying, I am thine and all that I have. Really? Well, you know what's going on here. Both of these guys are warring in what we call psychological warfare. You see, reading between the lines, Ben-Hadad knows this is going to take a long time to starve this city. It's going to take a long time. Ahab knows this is going to take a long time. So he's just going to agree to it. Now, I got an interesting question. Are you just trying to get rid of Jezebel? Maybe he's got a plan to just pay his way out of this. Get his way out somehow. So this message comes back. Okay, the terms are good. You see, Ben-Hadad doesn't want to spend years besieging and warring against Samaria. And Ahab doesn't want to have to endure that and eventually potentially starve to death and in the end be dead anyway. So let's come up with a deal where potentially things can work out okay for him. Well, now it starts to get interesting. Ben Hadad, this sounds good, right? This is exactly what you asked for, right? But it isn't good enough. Because listen, he changes the terms and he sends his messengers again to Ahab, and listen to this message. Although I have sent unto thee, saying, Thou shalt deliver me thy silver and thy gold and thy wives and thy children, yet I will send my servants unto thee tomorrow about this time, and they shall search thine house and the houses of thy servants. And it shall be that whatsoever is ple pleasant in thine eyes, they shall put it in their hand and take it away. Ah, the deal has changed a little bit. Have you noticed how the deal changed? Elijah, did you notice how the deal changed? See, the deal before was you give us all of your silver, your gold, your wives, your children, like you send it out. The new deal is you don't send it out, we're going to come in and take it. Do you know what this really is? A strategy to get through the walls. That's the strategy. This now will allow his army to get through the walls. So is Ahab going to figure it out? Is Ahab going to see this strategy? So you know what he does? He calls together all the elders. Let's just imagine you're all the elders. I don't know how many elders there were in the city of Samaria. And, and, and he has a question for them. Mark, I pray you, and see how this man seeketh mischief. For he sent unto me for my wives, and for my children, and for my silver, and for my gold. And I denied him not. Hearken not unto him, nor consent. Tell my lord the king, all that thou didst send for to thy servant at the first I will do. But this thing I may not do. And so the messengers departed. 
Ahab saw the mischief. He saw it. He knew that Ben-Hadab had bigger plans than just the silver, the gold, the children, and his wives. And the elders knew it too. That's why they said, hearken not unto him, nor consent. This is not a good deal. So the messenger comes back to Ben-Hadad, outside the city. I, I don't know if I wanted to be this messenger. Back and forth between these two guys. Well, Ben-Hadad has another message for his majesty, King Ahab. So he sends the messenger back. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. And Ben-Hadad sent them unto him and said, The gods do so unto me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people that follow me. Tell him, let not him that girdeth on his harness boast himself as he that putteth it on. Did you hear what he said? He says to him, the gods do so to me and more also. If but by this time tomorrow, sound familiar? This sounds a lot like your wife, Jezebel, with Elijah. And do you hear the threat? That Samaria tomorrow is going to be dust. And it's going to be ground so worthless that of his 270,000 soldiers, they'd all be able to bring home a souvenir of a handful of the dirt. That's how much he's going to obliterate your city. He's going to obliterate it so bad, so bad, <laughs> that all he's going to bring back home is just dirt. 270,000 handfuls of it. Ahab is quite brilliant, actually, in his reply in verse 11. He replied and says to him, Tell him, let not him that girdeth on his harness boast himself as he putteth it off. You know what a harness is? The harness is the upper piece of armor. Now, he's not got any armor on here. But if you went and put your armor on, you know, that would be the armor, the breastplate. Fastening it on, buckling it on. And Ahab is saying to him, why are you boasting like a man who has won the war and is taking the harness off as the winner? You're boasting like you're the winner when you're just putting it on. I say Ahab is wise in this observation. And why do I say that he is wise? Well, let's, let's turn in our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 27. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 1. Solomon wrote and he said this, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Mr. Ben-Hadad, or I'm sorry, your majesty Ben-Hadad, you did just that. You boasted of yourself 
of tomorrow. By this time tomorrow, I'm going to grind Samaria into dust so that all my soldiers can bring a handful home as a souvenir. That was the boast. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. You know, that is very true if you're a king. It's very true if you're a business owner. It's very true if you're a pastor. It's very true if you're a mom or a dad. It's very true no matter who you are and no matter how old you are. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Turn with me to another passage in the New Testament. Turn with me over to James chapter 4. God wants us to always be alert and aware of our days. And he wants us to acknowledge him in all our days. He wants us to see life from his perspective. And you say, wait a minute, I can't do that because I don't know, can't see tomorrow like God sees tomorrow. You're right. So when you can't see tomorrow like God sees it, know and acknowledge that he can. Look with me, James chapter 4. And in verse 13, it says this, kind of like Proverbs 27.1. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Do you guys know what a vapor is? Have you ever lit a candle and it's burning, like a birthday candle? And then you blew out your birthday candles, and then there's that little trickle of smoke coming up from your birthday candle? You ever seen that? You ever seen that little trickle of smoke? That's called a vapor. How long does it last? Not very long, does it? Well, that's what God's saying here. Your life, it is, it is but as a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanisheth away. So now we know this, what difference should this make? Verse 15. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. We boast an awful lot about our lives, don't we? By this time tomorrow, Samaria is going to be dust. How long have you besieged Samaria? I don't know, but I'm getting the impression it's been for a long time, and he's getting tired of it. And now he declares that he's going to crush the city in one day by the gods. You know what we find out here in this chapter? This is very important. We have dreadful theology. 
Do you guys know what theology is? Theology is a combination of two Greek words that mean God and study. It's the study or the knowledge of God. And what we find out here is that Ben-Hadad's got some bad theology because he believes in pagan gods. Well, we're going to find out he's got even more wacky theology. But if we keep on going, we're going to find out somebody else has got some theology problems. Did you know that your theology makes a difference in your life? What you know about God, what you believe about God, what you perceive about God will make a difference in your life. Very big difference. That's why it is so important that our understanding of who God is is not who we make up in our own mind or what our culture teaches us, but how God himself has revealed himself to us through his word. He's revealed us, himself to us in the creation, but it's insufficient. We need his word to clarify it because we might get the wrong idea if we just look at God and perceive him through creation. We need his word. And not only do we need his word, but we need to study it. That's the other part of theology is it's the study. There is some study involved. And, and it's interesting here, all of this. It's, it's bad theology in all of this. And so when this comes back and the messages come back to you, boast not thyself. Let him that girdeth on his harness boast himself. Let him not boast himself as he that putteth it off. And so it came to pass when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking, he and the kings in the pavilions, that he said unto his servants, Set yourselves in array. We're going to go to war! Now did you catch a little hint about what they've been doing? He and all his kings have been drinking themselves drunk. Do you think that's a good way to go in to fight a war? No. By the way, it isn't a good way to spiritually fight any battle either. Well, didn't make the, these guys. They're going to set themselves in array. A bunch of drunk people. And so they set themselves in array against the city. And so outside the city, we have 127,000 setting themselves in array, and all the leaders are drunk. It's kind of funny. Remember that all the kings are drunk, because later on, a conversation is going to come up about these kings. Remember this point, and you'll maybe make more sense as to why later, um, when the consul comes to his majesty, these kings aren't included. But what goes on in the inside the city? Now, inside the city... There is a prophet of God. Now, this is interesting because for a long time, the prophets of Jehovah have been massacred by him, by his wife. But there's a few left in this city right now. Have they been in hiding? Or perhaps they've come a little bit out of the woodwork since that confrontation at Mount Carmel with Elijah. Don't know. But I imagine it still took great courage to come in before this king as a prophet of God. But a prophet came in unto Ahab, king of Israel, and listen, listen to what he said. 
Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into thine hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. By whom? Thus saith the Lord, even by the young men of the princes of the provinces. Who shall order the battle? Thou. There's a plan, and there's a promise. God has promised through this prophet that Ahab will be victorious. And why is this? Notice the phrase at the end of verse 13. This is so that he, thou, King Ahab, shalt know that I am the Lord. And the plan is by the young men, even the princes of the provinces. You know, the princes of the provinces have all come and they have escaped to Samaria. They've sought refuge here in Samaria. And so Ahab, he numbers the young men of the princes of the provinces, and they were 232. And after them, he numbered all the people, even all the children of Israel, being 7,000. So get the numbers here. He has 232 princes. What that basically means is if we look at this and compare notes, those are the trained soldiers. Or likely the only ones who have been trained, or perhaps even the only ones who have swords. You have the princes, 232. And then you have 7,000 soldiers. Now, does anybody remember how many soldiers he has? How many? 127,000. Now, he's outnumbered by 120,000. You know what the odds are? 18 to 1. Charlie, you think you could be 18 guys all gained up on you? You think you have a chance? Would you even try? 18 guys against you. That's the deal here. That's the deal. You hear that, Ahab? 18 to 1. One of you versus 18 of them. That doesn't sound very exciting. Not to me. Why in the world would these princes and these 7,000 open the gates and go out and engage them? It's just massacre waiting to happen. Why could they? Why would they do this? Does anybody know? There's a really big reason, Paul, why? That's right. God was on their side. You say, God was on Ahab's side? Yeah. Which is interesting because Ahab doesn't really worship God. And in fact, all of this is about the fact that he doesn't believe in God. And part of it is to teach him that the Lord is the Lord, that God is God. 18 to 1, though. You see, they have a promise from God. Not just that God is on their side. They have a promise from God. That's a big deal. Faith isn't just this fluffy, fluffy thing that, oh, I have faith. I, I have faith. No, no. Faith is a big deal. 
because faith is in God and faith is a big deal when it is in what he has said and promised. That's what makes faith a big deal is who the faith is in. So they've got a guarantee. They've got a promise. God says, I will deliver it, this great multitude, into thine hand. And then a plan is given. And so it says, verse 16, that they went out at noon. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. Then, hey, Dad, you said, set the battle in array. And then he kept on drinking. He and all the other kings. That shows how confident they were in their numbers and in themselves. So earlier, he gets this message and he's drinking with the kings and the pavilions. And now, he tells the, sets the, the battle in array. And now, the gates are opening and Ben-Hadad, he, he's drinking himself drunk in the pavilions. He and the kings, the 30 and two kings that helped him. And the young men of the princes of the provinces went out first. And Ben-Hadad sent out and they told him saying, There are men come out of Samaria. Whether they be come out for peace, take them alive. Or whether they be come out for war, take them alive. See, there's not that many. There's just 250 of these princes. He's like, just take them prisoners of war. We'll decide what to do with them later. That's the plan. So these young men, the princes of the provinces, came out of the city and the army which followed them, and they slew every one his man. And the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. Did you see what it said there? Every, they slew every one his man. So remember I asked you, Charlie, you think you can go against 18 guys? Well, this just now said these guys went against every man his man, and he slew them. But guess what? Ben-Hadad got away. He got away. Look what it says here. For here it tells us that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the horsemen. So that means the horsemen got away and Ben-Hadad went with them. And it says that the king of Israel went out and he smote the horses and the chariots and he slew the Syrians with a great slaughter. This is a big deal. They've got horses. They should be able to get away. They've got chariots. They should be able to get away. Chariots in those days were like tanks nowadays. That's how invincible they were and there's this problem they've got them now they've got them even they're really close to Ben-Hadad well now the prophet came to the king of Israel and he says to him go strengthen thyself and mark and see what thou doest for at the return of the year, the king of Syria will come up against thee. So, Ben-Hadad has escaped with the horsemen and the chariots. 
And God warns Ahab, you wait, you watch. And I love the words here. Go strengthen thyself and mark and see what thou doest. Now tell me, when God says to Ahab, strengthen thyself, do you think there's a qualifier to that? Think about all that you know about in the Bible when it talks about being strong. Does it really, what do you think it means? You know, I think there is in here practical. Your Majesty King Ahab, get ready for war. Get the men together, get the hosts together, start preparing for war. But I think it also means, and is calling him out to seek his God. You've seen what God can do. You've seen what God can do with 18 to 1 ratio. What are you going to do next year? Because he's coming back. Well, the servants of Ben-Hadad, the king, the king of Syria, they are convinced that this is a theology problem. Oh, no, it's not with him. You just said the conversation isn't with him. This conversation is with that guy. See, he needs to work on his theology. So you're going to help out his theology because you got it figured out. You got it figured out. What do you think his consul, his idea is going to be for his majesty? See, everybody's figured out here this is a theological issue. 18 to 1, that doesn't work. This has got to be God thing. God told Ahab, this is all so that you know I am the Lord. So he got an idea. What's your idea? Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this thing, take the kings away, every man out of his place, and put captains in their rooms, and number thee an army, like the army that thou hast lost, horse for horse, and chariot for chariot. And we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. See, it's all about theology. We lost because Samaria, I, it, it's on a mountaintop, of course. Israel's gods are the gods of the hills. We can't win against the gods of the hills. So, I mean, 127,000, that's enough. We just need to get another army of 127,000. We need to get all the horses we had before and all the chariots we had before, and then we need to go fight against them. Especially noting, you do know, chariots can do a whole lot more damage in the plain than they can in the mountains. I mean, there's all kinds of things in this, but it all comes down to theology. Their gods must be the gods of the hills. So... We'll just fight them down in the plains, the flat land. You think it's going to work? I told you this is all about theology. Only reason they were stronger is because they were fighting in the hills. Ben-Hadad, he hearkened unto their voice. I think it's hilarious, I really do, that he said, let's not get the kings. <laughs> Those kings, they weren't helpful. They were helpful. It's interesting. It's a theology problem, but it was also a king problem. You know, the kings, when the trouble came, were just drinking themselves drunk in the pavilion. So these guys are like, yep, we need to fix the God problem, but then we got to fix the king problem. I'm not going to use them. We're going to appoint instead cap. 
dens in their rooms. Ben-Hadad, he thinks this is a great idea. And so it came to pass at the return of the year that Ben-Hadad numbered the Syrians and went up not to Samaria, but to Aphek. Let's look at our map again. Remember, Damascus is up, up, up higher. And you're going to see a, a star come on here. You see it there down by Joppa? The red star, the big star? We're going to go and we're going to meet up with them down there. In the plain to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were numbered and were all present and went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids. But the Syrians filled the country. You know what that picture is? That's a picture of looking out over the plain and seeing just two little flocks of animals. Sheep. The kids. The, the, the little, little lambs. Meanwhile, the Syrians... 127,000 filled the country. Now, what would you think if you were Ahab? You've had a whole year to prepare. You've got your men together. You've got your mark ready. Are you really? Way outnumbered again. So there came a man of God and spake unto the king of Israel. Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not the God of the valleys. Therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. It's still a theology problem. Ahab still doesn't know that there's only one true God. God's going to prove it to him. God's going to prove it to him. And he says, for the very fact, for the very fact that these guys know it's a theology problem, but yet refuse to acknowledge him. See, these guys do know. They do know who Jehovah is, and they know that Jehovah is not just the God of the hills. They know, intellectually at least, it's no secret, that Jehovah claims to be the creator of all things and the one and only true God. But they very intently choose not to accept it, just like him. But God's going to prove it to him. God's going to teach him that he may know that I am the Lord. He says, I will deliver this great multitude into thine hand. And so they pitched one over against the other for seven days. And so it was. That in the seventh day, the battle was joined and the children of Israel slew the Syrians an hundred thousand footmen in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city. And there, when they get into the city, a wall fell upon 20 and 7,000 of the men that were left. <laughs> so a hundred thousand of them are slain in the battlefield. And then... The other 20 and 7,000 go running into the fortified city, retreat into a fortified city, and when they get in there, a wall falls down on top of them. That's not supposed to happen. 
wall. The wall is supposed to protect them, and instead, the very wall they're running to hide behind falls down on top of them and kills them. 27,000 of them. It doesn't even seem feasible to me how that happened. But <laughs> that's exactly right. Except for God. That's the whole point of it. Except for God. Except for God. And so, Ben-Hadad, though, Ben-Hadad, he fled. And he came into the city into an inner chamber. So he didn't have the wall fall on him. And so his servants come up with another plan. Listen to this plan. We can hear it back there in the inner chamber. Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us, I pray thee, put sackcloth on our loins and ropes upon our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Peradventure, he will save thy life. There's a plan. So, that's what they do. They girded on sackcloth on their loins and they put ropes on their head and they came to the king of Israel and said, Heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us, I pray thee, put sackcloth on our loins and ropes upon our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Thy servant Ben-Hadon saith, I pray thee, let me live. Is he yet alive? He is my brother. Wait a minute, Ahab. What did you say? Is he yet alive? He is my brother. He's your what? Brother. You know what he's saying here? He's saying he's closer than a friend to me. Ben Hadad, he's my brother. Is Ben Hadad his brother? Literally, no. Is he his brother as in friendship? Yes or no? Oh, what's wrong with you, Ahab? Well, you know what? As soon as he says this little phrase, he's all concerned. Is he let alive? I hope he's alive. I'm adding to it. Is he yet alive? He's my brother. Now the men did diligently observe whether anything would come from him and did hastily catch it. And they said, Thy brother Ben-Hadad. Yeah, your brother Ben-Hadad. Go ye, bring him. So then Ben-Hadad came forth to him. And he caused him to come up into the chariot. You're in a chariot. You guys can imagine you're in a chariot. Yeah, two of you come. Into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad says unto him, The cities which my father took from thy father I will restore, and thou shalt make streets for thee in Damascus as my father made in Samaria. I will send thee away with this covenant. So he made him a covenant and sent him away. 
He made a peace treaty with him, a covenant, bigger deal than a peace treaty, and he sends him away. Now, this is interesting. It says that there's going to be a street in Damascus. You know what he's given them? This is a trade agreement. I'm going to let there be in the great, magnificent city of Damascus, little Israel. Yep, we'll have a little Israel in, in, in Damascus. We're going to have Israel town in Damascus. And you know what? We'll have Damascus town in Samaria. It's a trade agreement and a covenant. It's a promise of peace. Ben-Hadad returns to Ahab, the cities that his father took from his father, which is ambiguous. I believe this is not speaking of his literal father, Omri, but actually referring to Baasha. Remember, Elijah, what you said? Asa hired Ben-Hadad's father, apparently, to attack Baasha. He took cities. Apparently now in this treaty, those cities are being returned. Well, there's a certain man of the sons of the prophets. There's one. Here he is. We don't even know his name. And, and he comes to his neighbor. Is there a neighbor somewhere? Is he your neighbor? And, and, and he says to his neighbor, In the word of the Lord, Smite me, I pray thee. Now would you do that? When was the last time somebody walked up to you and said, in the name of the Lord, smite me? What would you do? I bet you would all do the same thing this guy did. No, that's weird. I'm not going to smite you. You're a prophet of God. I'm not going to smite you. Well, what's interesting here in this case is that he neglected one key phrase that it was in the word of the Lord. But the man refused to smite him. Then said he unto him, Because thou hast not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as thou art departed from me, a lion shall slay thee. And that's exactly what happened. When he gets out that door, a lion attacked him and smote him. So what's this guy doing? Well, so he found another man. <laughs> you have to. It's in the word of the Lord. Well, okay. Come on here, Micah. He's not going to do it. But this guy did it. Hey, news spread. Last guy who refused to do what he said in the name of the Lord got eaten by a lion. I bet you Paul got eaten by a lion. You would have smote him. And you would have done a good job at it. This guy did. He smote him and he wounded him. So the prophet departed, and he waited for the king by the way, and he disguised himself. He put ashes on his face. He, like, really got beat up bad. And, and he put on, made it look worse than it was. And as the king passed by, he cried unto the king, and he said, Thy servant 
went out into the midst of battle. And behold, a man turned aside and brought a man unto me and said, Keep this man. If by any means he be missing, then shall thy life be for his life, and else thou shalt pay a talent of silver. And as thy servant was busy here and there, he was gone. So shall thy judgment be. Thyself has decided it. <laughs> you see, this man of God, he made a plan. Well, don't go away yet. He made a plan. He's going to convince this king, not by a direct confrontation, but as Nathan the prophet of old, in a special and a different way. He's going to get his attention by telling him a story, saying, I was entrusted with a prisoner, and I let the prisoner escape. And the deal was, if I let that prisoner escape, is that I gave my life for that prisoner, or I paid, uh, what was it here? A talent, 75 pounds of silver. There's the deal. And the king says to him, okay, yeah, so you let the guy go, then there's your judgment. You just condemned yourself. You deserve to die. Well, at that moment, this prophet, he ditches his disguise, ditches his disguise, and he speaks and he says to him, Thus saith the Lord, because thou hast let go out of thy hand a man who I appointed to utter destruction. Therefore, thy life shall go for his life, and thy people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, heavy and displeased, and came to Samaria. We're out of time. We're actually in overtime. You know what happens? Next. We have to wait. Or read ahead. Because the two are tied together. The two are tied together. And we're going to come back to it. Just in closing, and we're going to come back in the morning message to this subject as well, but what's your theology? Do you know God? I don't just mean your imagination of who God is or what should be. Do you know God? Do you trust and obey him? Father, thank you so much for your word, and may we learn. May we learn from each of these individuals and their failures and in what they did right. We move in our hearts and lives, Father, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.